choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero J, and I feel fine. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 128 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo Mission Control, Christopher Columbus Craft, Part 2. Before we return to Chris Craft's career, I wanted to cover a little of Craft's personal life. In 1950, Craft was married to his wife, Betty Ann Turnbull. They met in high school. They had two children, Gordon and Christy Ann. In his autobiography, Kraft recognizes the sacrifices that his family made as a result of his work for NASA, saying that, quote, I was more of a remote authority figure to Gordon and Christiane than a typical American father. They all had my mother to fill some of the void, but it wasn't the same. Still, I don't know what I could have done differently. My nation called, I answered. All of us did our jobs, Gordon and Christiane too, though they'd be adults before they understood. Kraft's religion is Episcopalian. At his local church, he served as a lay reader, which meant he was authorized by a bishop in the Anglican Communion to lead certain services of worship or lead certain parts of a service. During the 60s, the Kraft family was deeply involved in church activities. Betty Ann taught Sunday school and served on the altar guild. Gordon was an acolyte, and Christy Ann sang in the choir. In addition to his duties as a lay reader, Kraft spent some time teaching a class in adult Bible study. As he recounts, however, quote, I lacked the fundamentalist fervor and drove people away when I tried too hard to relate the early church to more modern interpretations. It was hard not to be modern when I spent my working days sending men into space, end quote. Kraft has been an avid golfer ever since he was introduced to the game in the 1940s by his friends and NASA colleague, Sig Soberg. He cited the good golfing as a reason for staying in Houston after his retirement. Now, returning to Kraft's professional life, at a speaking engagement in 2001, Kraft was asked what he did. Uh, I think that uh, what we tried to do is figure out all of the things that could go wrong and be prepared to deal with them, and we call those mission rules. And we wrote all the 
procedures, both for ourselves and the astronaut and astronauts, and call those malfunction procedures. So we each knew what was expected of each other. We depended on each other. We integrated the astronauts into doing the job in space, and we did the job on the ground to keep them there and to accomplish the mission. A little different than you do when you're at Cape Canaveral. At Cape Canaveral, when you're preparing a spaceship and something goes wrong, you're trying to figure out how to fix it. It's a little different for the flight control team because they don't have any spares around in a spaceship in those days to fix the equipment, so we had to try to figure out how to accomplish the mission, even though the equipment was malfunctioning. Fortunately, Kraft was also asked which flights he was flight director on. Uh, I was the flight director for all of the Mercury missions uh, and the first uh, seven Gemini missions. Uh, I was the director of flight operations up till uh, Apollo 13, and then I was the deputy director of the Johnson Space Center, and then I was the director of the Johnson Space Center from 72 to 82 while we developed and flew the first shuttles. Kraft served as flight director during all six of the manned Mercury missions. Only during the final flight, Mercury Atlas 9, which lasted for over a day, did he share responsibility with his deputy, John Hodge. When Kraft was asked what it was like working with the pressure of the space race, he replied, Well, I mean... I'd be foolish to say it put no pressure on us, because it certainly did. But the pressure was good, not bad, uh, when you, and particularly in retrospect. I think that when you are, have the demands of the program, when you have the demands of a goal, when you get the commitment and dedication that that brings from the people involved, you, you actually get more out of the people than you would ever gotten under any other circumstances. So that truly was a wonderful experience to go through because people were giving you 110% of what they, uh, their capabilities were, and their capabilities improved every day uh, as a result of that. And so I don't think that we saw it at the time as being any great pressure. We, were, we wanted to beat the Russians into space, and that was a very big disappointment to us that we didn't. Uh, but we also wanted to beat them to the moon, and we did that in spades. So that was a very exhilarating feeling. But the time period that we worked in the 60s was really a great time, and I, for one, knew it was a great time, and that was a very fortunate thing because I enjoyed every moment of it. And I think everybody that worked in the program uh, enjoyed it. They put away their petty differences, and they worked very, very hard at getting the job done, and that was wonderful. Now I want to cover a couple of manned missions that Kraft was flight director on. First, Mercury Atlas 6, the flight of John Glenn. Now that was a testing experience both for mission control and for Kraft. Mercury Atlas 6 was the first orbital flight by an American. The flight went normally until Glenn began his second orbit. At that point, Kraft's system controller, Dan Arabian, reported that telemetry was showing a segment 51 indicator. This suggested that the capsule's landing bag, which was meant to deploy upon splashdown in order to provide a cushion, might have deployed early. Kraft believed that the segment 51 indicator was on due to faulty instrumentation rather than an actual early deployment. However, 
If he was wrong, it would mean that the capsule's heat shield, which fitted on top of the landing bag, was now loose. A loose heat shield could cause the capsule to burn up during re-entry. Upon consulting with his flight controllers, Kraft became more convinced that the indication was false and that no action was needed. However, Kraft's superiors, including Mercury capsule designer Max Faget, felt differently. They overruled Kraft, telling him to instruct Glenn to leave the capsule's retro rocket package on during re-entry. The reasoning was that the package, which was strapped over the heat shield, would help hold the heat shield in place if it was loose. Kraft, however, felt that this was an unacceptable risk. He believed that if any fuel was left in any of the three retro rockets, a fatal explosion could occur. Faget told Kraft all the fuel was burned. Kraft reluctantly agreed to follow the plan advocated by Faget and by Walt Williams, his superior, his superior in the Flight Operations Division. The retro rockets would be kept on. Of course, Glenn landed safely, but an inspection of his capsule revealed that one of the landing bag switches had been faulty. Kraft was right. The heat shield had not been loose after all. Kraft swore that his decision as a flight director would not be overruled again. Kraft's assistant on the mission was Gene Krantz. He considered Glenn's flight to be a turning point in Kraft's evolution as a flight director. Kraft believed his flight control team was superior to the designers at real-time integrated space systems analysis. Years later, Kraft was asked what his proudest moment in the space program was. And even though he had been overruled on this flight, it was mentioned as one of his proudest moments. Here's the clip. I had many proud moments. I'm, I, I don't think I could single out any one proud moment. That would be extremely difficult for me to do. I think Alan Shepard was certainly uh, a, a flight where I learned to be a flight director because uh, un, until you put a human being on the end of a rocket, you don't under, really understand the problem. And uh, I was pretty nervous. Uh, I was pretty exhilarated when it was over, as was Alan Shepard. Certainly Glenn's flight was uh, a great flight for all of us. And then each one got better. Uh, Apollo 8 was probably uh, my most exhilarating moment because I was the guy that had talked the management into putting the vehicle around the moon and then in orbit around the moon, and that's a little bit different than just going around it. Uh, so it had to work going in and it had to work coming out, and that was uh, pretty exciting and uh, pretty demanding on my part, I suppose. As I mentioned before, after John Glenn's flight, Kraft vowed that he would no longer allow his decisions as flight director to be overruled by anyone outside mission control. The mission rules, whose drafting had been overseen by Kraft, stated that the flight director may, after analysis of the flight, choose to take any necessary action required 
for the successful completion of the mission. For Kraft, the power that the flight director held over every aspect of the mission extended to his control over the actions of the astronauts. In his 1965 interview with Time magazine, he stated that, quote, The guy on the ground ultimately controls the mission. There's no question about that in my mind, or in the astronauts' minds. They're going to do what he says, end quote. The other Mercury mission I want to cover is Mercury Atlas 7, Scott Carpenter's flight. Kraft objected to the choice of Scott Carpenter as the astronaut for this flight because of his lack of flight test hours compared with the rest of the group, his lack of interest in Kraft's mission control program, and his lack of engineering skills. The mission suffered from problems, including an unusually high rate of fuel usage, a malfunctioning horizon indicator, a delayed retrofire for re-entry, and a splashdown that was 460 kilometers downrange from the target area. Throughout the mission, Kraft found himself frustrated by the vagueness of Carpenter's communications with mission control and what he perceived as Carpenter's inattention to his duties. Kraft believed that Carpenter either didn't understand his instructions or was ignoring his instructions. While some of these problems were due to mechanical failures, too many science experiments and responsibility for some of the others is still debated, Kraft did not hesitate to assign blame to Carpenter and continued to speak out about the mission for decades afterwards. In his autobiography, the chapter that dealt with the flight of Mercury Atlas 7 was titled, The Man Malfunctioned. In a letter to the New York Times, Carpenter called the book vindictive and skewed and offered a different assessment of the reasons for Kraft's frustration. Carpenter wrote, In space, things happen so fast that only the pilot knows what to do, and even ground control can't help. Maybe that's why he is still fuming after all these years. End quote. After the flight, Kraft spoke to his friend, Deke Slayton, and persuaded him to agree that Scott Carpenter would never fly in space again. With the beginning of the Gemini program, Mission Control moved to Houston. In 2001, Kraft was asked, why Houston was chosen. His answer was typical of Kraft. Uh, initially, I'd have to say that uh, the, the Johnson Space Center, as it is known today, arrived in Houston because of the politics. Uh, when you have Lyndon Johnson as the president and, Al, and uh, Mr. Uh, uh, the other congressman uh, from Texas, then it's all, beg pardon? And t yeah, I was, I was getting a regular to Tiger, but uh, Albert Thomas is the gentleman I was trying to think of, because Albert Thomas was head of the uh, Appropriations Committee at the time. 
And and certainly we arrived in Texas because they had a lot to do with it, and that's where we ended up. There were seven cities being considered, uh, and if you had asked us to rank them in the program, we'd have put Texas seventh. Uh, after we got there, uh, we put Texas first because I think it has been very good for us. But a more direct answer to your question is when this thing lifts off the pad, you could be in Timbuktu and it wouldn't make any difference because from then on you're dependent upon communications lines from around the world as it flies either around the world or out into deep space. So it really doesn't make any difference where the control center is. We wanted the control center where it was after we moved to Texas because we wanted the flight control people, the astronauts, and the engineers that built it to work together to build the best machine. With the beginning of Apollo, Kraft expected to return to his role in mission control. He would have been lead flight director on the first manned Apollo mission, later known as Apollo 1, if not for the accident. As the Apollo missions progressed, occasionally Kraft intervened in order to ensure that his conception of the flight director's authority was maintained. By the time that the Apollo 7 mission flew, he had been promoted to head of flight operations, thus it was Glenn Looney who served as lead flight director and had to deal directly with behavior by the crew that Kraft considered insubordinate. As Kraft commented in his memoirs, quote, It was like having a ringside seat at the Wallace Sherall complaint circus, end quote. Mission Commander Wallace Raw annoyed by last-minute changes in the crew's schedule and, suffering from a bad head cold, repeatedly refused to accept orders from the ground. The worst was the crew's refusal to put their helmets back on for re-entry because Sherall was concerned that the crew's head cold, in combination with pressurized suits during re-entry, would rupture their eardrums. After the flight, once again, Kraft consulted with his friend Deke Slayton, and they decreed that the Apollo 7 crew would never fly in space again. As the director of flight operations, Kraft was closely involved in planning the broad outlines of the program. He was one of the first NASA managers to become involved in the decision to send Apollo 8 on a circumlunar flight. Due to problems with lunar module development in 1968, NASA faced the possibility of a full Apollo test mission being delayed until 1969. As a substitute, George Lowe, the manager of the Apollo Spacecraft Program Office, came up with the idea of assigning a new mission profile to Apollo 8, one that could be flown without the lunar module. The idea was discussed in early August at a meeting between Lowe, Kraft, Gilruth, and Deke Slayton. Lowe's plan was to fly in December, which left little time for Flight Operations Division to train and prepare. 
After agreeing that the mission was possible in principle, Kraft went to his mission planners and flight directors in order to determine whether they and their teams could be ready within the tight schedule that was projected. In August of 1968, Apollo 8 was given final approval by James Webb. In planning for Apollo 8, one of the responsibilities Kraft faced was ensuring that a fleet would be waiting to recover the crew when they splashed down at the end of the mission. This proved an unusual challenge because much of the Pacific Fleet of the U.S. Navy would be on leave over Christmas and New Year's Eve. Kraft had to personally meet with Admiral John McCain in order to persuade him to make the requisite resources available to NASA. On Christmas Eve, 1968, Apollo 8 went into orbit around the moon. Only ten years earlier, Kraft had joined Gilruth's newly found space task group. Now the two men sat together in mission control, reflecting on how far they had come. Around them, the room was filled with cheers, but Kraft and Gilruth separated more quietly. Kraft recalled, quote, It was glorious pandemonium, and through the mist in my own eyes, I saw Bob Gilruth wiping at his and hoping that no one saw him crying. I put my hand on his arm and squeezed. He lifted my hand from his arm and shook it strongly. There were no words from either of us. The lumps in our throats held them back. Kraft again found himself a spectator during the landing of Apollo 11, which he viewed from mission control sitting with Gilruth and George Lowe. He played a more active role in events during the unfolding of the Apollo 13 crisis. Called into mission control by Gene Krantz almost immediately after the accident, Kraft chaired the meeting of senior managers which decided the mode that Apollo 13 would use to return to Earth. Many Apollo engineers, later to become top managers themselves, considered Kraft to have been one of the best managers in the program. He personally handpicked and trained an entire generation of NASA flight directors, including John Hodge, Glenn Lenny, and Gene Krantz, the last of whom referred to Kraft simply as the teacher. Kraft could, however, be a tough taskmaster, making it clear that there was no place in the Flight Operations Division for those who failed to live up to his exacting standards. Kraft is quoted as saying, quote, To err is human, but to do so more than once is contrary to Flight Operations Directorate Policy, end quote. Subordinates who seriously displeased Kraft could find themselves deprived of the opportunity to make it up to him. Kraft possessed the power to end careers at Johnson Space Center. As mission controller Cy Liebergott recalled, quote, If he was behind you, you had as much leverage as you needed. If he was against you, you were dead meat. End quote. In 1969, Kraft was named Deputy Director of the Manned Spacecraft Center. 
On January 14, 1972, he became the director of MSC, replacing Gilruth, for whom Krath had worked since his arrival at Langley in 1945. Space commentator Anthony Young has described Kraft as a superb successor to Gilruth, second only to him in the history of center directors. During his retirement, Kraft has consulted for numerous companies, including IBM and Rockwell International. Kraft has received numerous awards and honors for his work, these include the NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal, four NASA Distinguished Service Medals, the Distinguished Citizen Award given to him by the City of Hampton, Virginia in 1966, the John J. Montgomery Award in 1963, and the Goddard Memorial Trophy awarded by the National Space Club in 1979. In 1999, Kraft received the National Space Trophy from the Rotary National Award for Space Achievement Foundation, which described him as, quote, a driving force in the U.S. human spaceflight program from its beginnings to the space shuttle era, a man whose accomplishments have become legendary, end quote. In 2006, NASA gave Kraft the Ambassador of Exploration Award, which carried with it a sample of lunar material brought back from Apollo 11. Kraft, in turn, presented the award to his alma mater, Virginia Tech, for display in its College of Engineering. In 2011, the Johnson Space Center renamed its Mission Control Center the Christopher C. Kraft, Jr. Mission Control Center, in his honor. Kraft Elementary School, located in Hampton, Virginia, near Kraft's hometown, was named for him. More than any other single person, Kraft has been responsible for shaping the organization and culture of NASA's mission control. As his protege, Glenn Lunny, commented, quote, the control center today is a reflection of Chris Kraft, end quote. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.